We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. Just a minute, ladies and gentlemen, I think something is happening. Good evening. I hope you'll excuse me if I appear a trifle excited. We're only interested in one thing. Can you tell a story, Bob? Can you make us laugh? Can you make us cry? Can you make us want to break out? Enjoy us all. We move fast. Can you take it? No matter what you do now, you're still part of everything that's happening. Used to be in silent pictures. Used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. We need more heart in motion pictures. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? Just put your lips together and blow. Listen to me, Hatcher. You gotta tell him. I just wanna say one word to you. Just one word. Are you listening? The Boulevard of Broken Dreams. We're making another movie. This is the one I'll be remembered for. Hello. You're listening to Sorted Cinema. My name is Simon. This week I'm joined by Ricky D, as always. What's up, Simon? You did change your microphone. You sound crisp and clear and good. Yeah, I am. This Samson didn't pay me for this product placement, but I do have to give them props here uh, because I had a Samson CO1U microphone for many, many years. It served me very well. I was very rough with it. I broke it while traveling. So I got a new Samson CO1U Pro. Sounds pretty good. Feels pretty durable. Uh, They did not pay me for that. Only Um, you. Everyone else uses a Yeti. Uh, however, uh, we're we're mixing it up a little bit this week. We've brought on a guest, uh, Mr. Randy Dankovich. Hello, my dudes. I use an off-brand mic, if that makes you feel better. And we are taking a break from the movie format to talk about a uh, miniature series, a miniseries. And the miniseries in question is Midnight Mass, uh, principally written and uh, directed by Mr. Mike Flanagan who we've talked about several times before. We're going to hear a clip. We're going to come in. We're going to talk about it. Uh, It's been a while, so this is going to be a pretty fully spoilery discussion, uh, and it's probably going to get that way before very long, so you have been warned. We tend to dislike mysteries. We feel uncomfortable not knowing. The more that we know... The less we bend, the more brittle we become. The easier to break. That wasn't an act of God. Wasn't it? It's okay to just look at the world and say, why, why, why? I don't understand. Welcome back after the clip. Uh, so, Ricky, we've been we've been talking about Mike Flanagan for a long ass time. Yes. So, do you know that I watched his first movie? I believe it was at the Fantasia Film Festival. Absentia, yeah. 
I reviewed it. I wrote a raving review, and I ended my review by saying he's a talent to watch out for. He's the future of horror. Like, I raved about this guy. Then I met him in real life. Boy, was I let down. <laughs> not, a good, <laughs> not a good first impression. Let me just say. I met him at a bar. And it, don't go, it didn't go too well. And then I kind of held a grudge. And I wasn't too hot on his follow-up film and the film he made after. And I was like, am I letting my personal feelings towards this man get in the way of me viewing his movies as being good? Because everyone else seemed to love Hush. And what was Oculus? I think it was Oculus. Oculus with the mirror. Yeah. yeah. I wasn't too hot on those movies, to be honest. But that first movie was amazing. I love his Netflix stuff. Hill House is like one of my favorite things ever. Blind Manor was not bad. I liked it. I love Midnight Mass. Doctor Sleep, I think it's a good film. I don't think it's as good as everyone says it is. But the point is, this dude is great. Um, he's, uh, he's a fantastic filmmaker. He's, he's incredibly talented. You know, you got to give the guy credit because he's not necessarily doing easy projects. Like, adapting a sequel to one of the most beloved horror films of all time in Doctor Sleep is not an easy task adapting Gerald's game, a movie in which a woman is strapped to a bed for almost the entire film is not an easy thing to do. Adapting anything that Stephen King wrote is not easy. And also, you know, his, his, his three Netflix series are not exactly like easy things to do either. It's not like he's doing an hour and a half you know, slasher film, right. That, that riffs off of like scream or something. Yeah. So yeah, the dude is really incredibly talented and um, I happen to think that this is one of the best shows of 2021, but I'm not happy with how it ended. We're going to talk about it. there's a few things yeah. that would change, but I, I like how it combines horror with questions about spirituality and explores religion and faith as most Flanagan movies and and shows do like it seems to be his trademarks, I guess, mm -hmm. but he's more interested in characters and emotions over cheap scares and shock value yeah the, the the two primary descriptors that i would use for mike flanagan are that he's very prolific that the guy is ridiculously productive or at least he has a huge backlog of ideas and scripts uh, that he now has carte blanche to just make which is sort of what happened with midnight mass this is very old material for him and it's very um, openly autobiographical material for him. Um, listeners at home, if you haven't read the op-ed he wrote, or sort of op-ed guest article he wrote over at Bloody Disgusting, explaining his personal history and the history of this project, uh, even if you didn't really like it, I still think it's it's a worthwhile read, and he and it's 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 nicely written. Uh, but the, anyway, the other descriptor I would use besides productive is that he's got brass fucking balls. Um, and that means, like you said, Ricky, that he will direct um, a, a sequel to The Shining that recreates footage f uh, from The Shining. Do it doesn't excerpt them. He, he completely recreates them from scratch. Um, like that takes balls. That takes thinking that that only that, you know, that takes thinking that your ideas are good and to hell with anyone who thinks otherwise, um, which is a really good quality to have in a filmmaker most of the time. Um, that being said, the one thing he doesn't always have is quality control and restraint. Um, and when I say restraint, I don't mean stylistic restraint because actually his stylistic uh, uh, quirks are some of the best things about him. I just mean he doesn't know when to stop adding episodes, adding characters, adding subplots, adding themes, adding ideas. He just he's he 
like uh, I, wait, I, I do want to say before Randy jumps in, I wouldn't yeah. use the word quality control. I think it's one of those prime examples of someone who's just so in love with his work that he needs sort of like maybe someone to help guide him and tell him like, you need to take this out. This someone out, this out. so yeah, a, a good editor, someone to tell him uh, someone, someone he trusts to tell him you can get rid of these three things and your product will be 50% better, which is something that I think becomes a glaring issue, frankly, in the last couple of episodes of this series. But Randy, we haven't let you talk at all. Where do you think the slots in, in the, in the overall Flanagan pyramid of greatness or okayness? I think another interesting thing about like Mike Flanagan and his career is kind of how he's transformed himself from being a reality TV show producer to um, somebody who's really embraced a lot of the different modern avenues to release films. I mean, his first film was a funded by Kickstarter, if I remember correctly back, it was like one of the first big Kickstarter movies Yeah, back in the early 2010s. And, um, you know, so he went from there to making low budget ass movies uh, with small production studios to um, getting a shitload of money from Netflix. And I think that's where, you know, you go from his first film, which was, if I remember correctly, a tight 90 minutes to something like Midnight Mass or Dr. Sleep, which I was convinced Dr. Sleep was three and a half hours long when I saw it. It turns out it was under three hours, but I certainly think that the Flanagan Netflix relationship allows for some of uh, Flanagan's less desirable indulgences to come through as well as some of his, the stuff that we really enjoy to see from him. I, uh, I'm a pretty big fan of Midnight Mass. I think I'm, while I'm not the biggest fan of how it ends, I think I'm probably a little bit warmer uh, than you guys are. But I, you know, when I wrote about this, um, when it came out, uh, I said it was my favorite thing from Mike Flanagan. And I think thinking about it for a month and watching it again in that time, um, I would stand behind that. I, this is, I enjoyed this more than both of the hauntings. I think, you know, it's, it's, Haunting of Hill House is fantastic in its own right. It doesn't take a lot to be better than Bly Manor. Um, so that's not really like high praise there. But um, of all of Mike Flanagan's projects, this is easily my favorite. I think this, there's the personal attachment that you talk about in that, that he wrote about in that op-ed um, was certainly something you could feel in the material in a way that was different, that didn't feel like, you know, um, his reverence for Stephen King's work that comes through in Gerald's game. Like there was a personal tone to this that came through, especially in the early episodes that uh, really kind of grabbed my attention. And, you know, I think the, the fifth and sixth episodes of this season are probably, you know, going to be amongst the best episodes of TV when we're reflecting on the end of the year. Like that's kind of the high point of Mike Flanagan's work, I think, of those two episodes. Hey, now, I love this show. It's one of my favorite shows of the year. I'm just not too hot on episode seven, but I don't think you're hot on how it ends, too. But look, this show is fantastic, but it's one of those shows where I kind of I kind of hesitate before I recommend it to a casual viewer because I think and I have and a lot of people complain that there's just it's just too slow or just too many conversations or it doesn't go anywhere or they're confused or there's not enough gore or blood. It's not like a typical horror TV series. It's not American Horror Story. It's more like The Leftovers. It's more like, mm. let's dig into these characters. Let's dig into this small town. 
let's talk about faith and religion and how organized religion tears people apart and at the same time unites them. Um, you know, it's 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 a vampire show. I mean, we can say that, right? This is a spoiler episode, I guess. It's about yeah. vampires to some degree, but vampire is never actually like the word vampire is never actually mentioned or spoken, which is hilarious. Like it's one of the most, it's one of the funniest decisions that he made was just to not, to not have anyone even understand what a vampire is in this universe is extremely funny. Look, I like Flanagan because has a storyteller has a horror filmmaker and writer and director. He uses the horror genre as a vehicle for deep emotional exploration. And I kind of need a bit of like my scream and a bit of this, you know, like I don't want to watch the same kind of horror films over and over, but he always digs into these themes of abuse, addiction, loss. And I feel like I don't want to use the word trademark because that sounds weird and odd, but his, his work does sort of like power, like it all feels very similar in terms of like Mm -hmm. what the characters are dealing with, like grief and again, abuse and addiction. Like I think Simon, you said that in that, piece that was printed on what was it on bloody Bloody disgusting Disgusting. he talks about his addiction to alcohol for example and so it does feel like a very personal piece of 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 uh filmmaking but i'm not entirely sure because i don't know the man personally uh i would say that like the sensibility i'm glad you brought up the leftovers because i thought of lindelof a lot lindelof um the best oh, show ever. The Leftovers fucking whips. You get 10 TV critic points for mentioning The Leftovers. Um, I seriously can. I, I talked with uh, um, I, I had discussions. I was in talks with with my good friend Kate Rennebaum to do a Leftovers podcast for a while. Oh, boy. We did it. That's the problem with mentioning The Leftovers. Now we just want to talk about The Leftovers. I know. But anyway, it's got some of that. It's sort of like a weird like Flanagan's current current vibe is like a weird halfway point between like um like a populist populist storyteller like stephen king or steven spielberg like a like a like someone who goes for a big american canvas for their storytelling with someone like a lindelof who has more interest in um you know symbols and religion and uh, and mythos and is sort sort of more about generating uh, a deep emotional response that isn't necessarily connected to anything logical. Um, here, there's like some of the, there, there's a lot of the, there's a lot of Lindelof in here with these long monologues and these long discussions of religion and spirituality and atheism and science, um, and and it does as we'll get into get to be fucking overkill by the end. There is one monologue delivered by the sheriff and there's nothing wrong with the monologue per se in its own bubble. But when you get to that monologue, which I believe is like episode five or six, six. we're talking about the nine 11 monologue. Yeah. Yep. I just felt it was overkill. It felt unneeded. Like I didn't need that monologue for, for me to understand the discrimination that this sheriff feels and, and has to go through in a small town because clearly people aren't exactly keen to the fact that he's Muslim. I just felt that like the monologue itself, like again, there, there is nothing wrong with the writing and the delivery and the acting and the direction. It just felt like it should have been removed from the TV show. Um, We should rewind a bit and sort of set the stage for what the show is about. I have another grievance to, uh, to tack on after that. 
But um, in the first couple of episodes, it really starts off as being a show about, wouldn't you know it, loss and guilt and grief, which have been the motifs for all of Flanagan's Netflix series, especially. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Doesn't it start with someone dying and someone praying? It's it be it opens with uh, our good boy Zach Guilford um, killing a woman while driving drunk out of his mind. Okay, let's not be so like harsh on the guy. No, I mean this is this is his admitted. No, but it was an accident. It was an accident, though. Sure, but still, he is responsible. Like the way he said it was like he murdered her. I mean, with his car, he sort of did murder murder her with his car. Okay, anyhow, so. I mean, look, he's not a real person. He can't sue us. Also, he's dead and was a vampire. So vampires have no rights in in a court of law, especially not fictional vampires. So anyway, um, that it opens with that. And then, of course, we end up in this tiny island community, which was sort of inspired by where Mike Flanagan's dad was from. Uh, he was. Oh, really? Yeah, there was some family connection there. So like, really, again, uh, really going deep on the on the personal angle, which I find is 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 sort of a boring way to look at art sometimes. But I do like. Um, anyway, we can get into the stuff that he's good at. And I do little, like little the island, the fictional island called. Crockett it's a good setting. It, it it's it's really nicely rendered. Um, you you actually get a sense of sort of what the layout of the whole island kind of is. Well, um, also it's because it's an island in which most people make their money and living from fishing. But from my understanding, fishing's not going very well because I don't know. There's no fish. Oh no, because of oil spill. There was an oil spill. Yeah, which which ended up being actually very timely. As it turns okay. out, it's it's also a strongly uh, religiously devout community. Like not everyone is a churchgoer, but there's certainly a lot of Christianity in the air, or at least there was. Perhaps it is on the wane somewhat. And there are 127 residents, and the show has 127 characters that you get to know. Indeed, you get to know all 120. It's 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 uh, it's like Rent. You know, they just they just keep showing up, and uh, and we and we get to, everyone gets a monologue and a song. Um, so, uh, and I have to say, for those early episodes, I mean, obviously, I do think the show does take a bit of a nosedive after episode five, to be honest. Uh, but I think even before that, like there, there's a rising interest to me in the in those five episodes, uh, and I, I think I, w- I was really taken in with the early episodes and their focus on uh, is a sort of Catholic ritual and Catholic um, dogma, and uh, and and also of course it just gave uh, Hamish Linklater, who plays the quote unquote new priest, um, many opportunities to just chew the fuck out of some scenery. But don't you think it's sort of relevant and uh, helps explain the characters that there was an oil spill and they are oh, sort yeah. of suffering yeah. financially? And when the priest does show up, it's in a time of need. It's in a time of need, and they look to him for answers and help. And yeah, the and the, and the population is aging. Uh, they've got problems. You know, the, the 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 stage is set like pretty clearly. We all got problems. Let's be honest. I don't have any problems. I don't know what you're talking about. Okay, so the priest shows up in town, and then, and then what? Like, are you are you explaining then the plot cats here? Start dying. No, I was just uh, I I was I was wondering about your respective thoughts on the early episodes and how it sort of starts to roll out. I'm, I'm going to say that the first episode, like I never really judge first episode of a TV show, even if it's a miniseries, too harshly because it's sort of like 
has the burden of establishing this location and the characters and there's so many characters and setting the themes and the vibe and the tone etc etc i think the first episode did a pretty good job and i like the way it ends with that mystery except they never go back to the mystery of what happened with the cats that died which was weird but it's really the second episode that got me and it's because in a second episode correct me if i'm wrong but i think that that is when riley goes to his first quote-unquote a meeting, a yeah. meeting with the priest, and he delivers what is the first great monologue of the series, of which there are many great monologues, uh, in which Riley questions divine intervention. That is when the show really hooked me. Can I just say before you cut in, Randy? Um, these, I hope these monologue. If there are still theater kids in the future, I hope that at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen. They're delivering uh, Riley Flynn monologues for their auditions. I would rather be like the priest delivering those sermons. Oh, yeah. The sermons would also be like, yeah, you could do like a Howard Beale thing with the sermons. I think the first episode works as like a point of intrigue. I think if you look back at the first episode at the end of the series, you know, like like Ricky said, there's just kind of a lot of questions about some of the things that are introduced that are never really returned to. Um, But I think. The second episode, when the show really starts to lay out what's going on around the town, I, you know, I think the stuff that starts with Bev in the second episode is when things start to get really interesting because there's a clear entryway into like the kind of religious, just the kind of religious zealots that you'll find in these small remote towns like this, people that are from generally speaking from a different generation and have been isolated from society enough that um, it has warped their brains to the point that they think poisoning, you know, homeless people's dogs is a good thing to do and and a righteous thing to do. And I think that, you know, along with that first AA meeting really starts to set the stage and open up what this world is about more than just, you know, sad sons and, broken divorced wives um and you know from there you know episodes three through five are just kind of this grand crescendo uh in a way that you know even knowing mike flanagan's work and how it usually progresses you know reached a a level that uh i wasn't really quite expecting you know i think once we go into the tomb during monsignor pruitt's trip to israel we're kind of all bets are off but I think the show's ability to raise its stakes after that poor vampire joke, insert that here. Um, the show really surprised me in a way that I didn't expect. Can you refresh my memory? Is Bev Keen, the character you're speaking of, is she introduced in the first episode? As she her, is, like, yeah. The, but as in like very over the top, extremely religious and psychotic? Or was that just episode they, they, two? It's certainly, it's certainly hinted at. It's hinted, throughout. right? Because I think Randy's right. But well, I think like, if I you think... grow up in certain circles as well, there are a number of warning signs with her character early on. I know having grown up in a really rural town that had, you know, three churches next to its one gas station on Main Street, you can get a feel for her character in the way it's introduced. She is, in my opinion, the true villain of the show. And there's no question there. No question. And when she is introduced in that fashion, when we actually get to see who she is for what she really is, that's when we the show becomes a little bit more interesting. But that's also when I start thinking of like the mist Mm. because Samantha Sloyan's 
performance here is very similar to the performance of what's her face again from the mist the- it was marcia gay harden yes uh, very very similar absolutely just spitting dripping with venom like she is the she is the only character and to be honest it, it ended up being a bit of a problem for me she's the only character who ha- has no redeeming qualities and and does not uh is not redeemed in any way well i mean her it's not the way it manifests but i mean there's a certain respect I have for a person who is so committed to something that they, you know, there, there is one of the reasons that I find this kind of extreme exploration of religion. So fascinating is it really contends with this idea of people that have absolute conviction in their, their ideas and their actions. And, you know, we, we live in a world of evil people who enact themselves on us simply by force of their will and, you know, the piles of money that they have, but that allows them to enact their will on the world. And that seeing that conviction filtered through kind of a more traditional religious um, storyline, I thought was really an interesting way to paint uh, what is kind of a rather prototypical villain for a Catholic story. The the um I have to say that since we sort of discussed the first two episodes a bit, three through five was to me, I mean, it's not only the chronological heart of the series, but it's also where uh, Flanagan plays a few of his cards definitively and says, by the way, this is going to be where I give you the most sweeping, tragic uh, love affair that I've ever put in one of these shows. And just to... And just to really, you know, um, press down on that button, I'm going to have a character who is openly based on me romancing my actual wife. Uh, and I'm going to luxuriate on this for several episodes while, while, in addition to that, the character who basically is me gives you my actual opinion on what happens when you die, which is something else that he ex- expressed in that op-ed. Uh, that, my friends, is is lapsed Catholic bingo. Dude, that scene on the couch when they talk about the afterlife, I think it's the best scene in TV of 2021. I watched it three times. It is incredible. That is it's not a monologue because it's a conversation happening between Aaron and Riley. But what's also I mean, Riley, when he starts talking, that's that's a monologue. I mean, it's three minutes of him and the camera by himself. It transitions into a monologue. But at the end of the series episode seven when Aaron is dying they transition back to the monologue but it's a different version of the conversation and I thought that was fantastic but that scene guys that is the scene that is the money shot but it's not a shot it's an entire scene it is incredible what when we die what happens what the fuck happens? So what do you think happens when we die here? Speaking for myself? Speaking for yourself. Myself. Myself. That's the problem. That's the whole problem with the whole thing. That word. Self. 
That's not the word. That's not right. That isn't. That isn't. How did I forget that? When did I forget that? The body stops a cell at a time, but the brain keeps firing those neurons. Little lightning bolts like fireworks inside, and I thought I'd despair or feel afraid, but I don't feel any of that. None of it. Because I'm too busy. I'm too busy in this moment. Remembering. This series made me realize, um, for reasons, I was uh, revisiting uh, Chantal Ackerman's Jeanne Dielman, which has many long takes. In fact, the average uh, take is about 57 seconds, and there's many that go on for four or seven minutes. Um, and at the time, that was seen as like an art house provocation to have takes that long. And it's, I guess, still seen that way in, in some contexts. But this show made me realize that it's now been long enough and it's been used enough that the long take is now just another tool in the toolbox that people can whip out just like a close up. Like it is no longer special or interesting that there are long takes and things, but, but I will say these are, these are mostly good. Yeah. Everybody that grew up with that new wave in the seventies taught film throughout the nineties and the two thousands. And that's, you know, one of the first things that you would learn in that era. And then, you know, of course, Children of Men came out and, you know, the populism lost their goddamn minds for the long take. Hold on a second. I got to jump in really quick. I get what you're saying, Simon. But from a technical point of view, because of how advanced technology is, because of, of the advancement in film equipment and post-production and CGI, et cetera, et cetera, sure. the long take is no longer something that people marvel at. But a long take done right in the sense of how... Yeah. The director directs it. The 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 um, what's, the, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, the the blocking of the shot, the movement, the, the delivery of uh, by the actors, the performance. It could be a scene stealing sequence in the sense, like forget about the technical. You know, it could it could be like a static shot. It doesn't have to be like technically like uh, complicated. It could just be a very yeah. static shot. But well, it's what's it's, happening in the frame. The the thing that I like about how Flanagan does it. I think a lot of other filmmakers get it wrong because they think that a long take feels more natural, which I think is bullshit. Like, I think in most cases, a, a long take is distracting and, and it calls attention to its own style. I think Flanagan understands this and plays into that and just says, OK, I'm going to do it. So I'm going to make it something special. So so, for instance, the most uh, the most ostentatious long take in terms of uh, pulling it off is at the opening of, I think, the fourth episode um, when they're on the beach and they're uh, sur surveying. Or maybe it's actually the, the, the opening of the second episode because that's uh, it's right after. Anyway, whatever. There's a really, lo there's a really long and obviously very in uh, intense and difficult to, uh, to accomplish, at least in terms of prep, uh, long take. And it's it's not natural at all. Like the it's got characters who you're circling around in an open area, and actors are coming in and out of the frame with their dialogue, like it's a play. It's extremely theatrical. The only thing there isn't is a curtain. And I dug the shit out of that sequence. I think that's episode two. Look, the yeah, hardest thing it, about a long take is the actual setup of the lighting, because if your camera moves, then that's when it gets complicated. Yeah. 
I think episode two, if I remember correctly, opens with that scene, with that long shot, and then also closes with the long shot. Is that the episode that has Aaron and our boy Riley walking? There's a scene of them walking that's a long take that... Yeah, yeah, yes, it's, yes. yes and I think it's an it. interesting contrast in the different styles we're talking about a long takes, because the, the, the one that opens the episode is very showy, and it's it's very much aware that we're going to realize it's a long take as kind of the cameras whipping around and everybody's moving i mean the characters in the background may as well be juggling yeah but then you contrast that with the long take at the end where it takes about a minute to realize that you're in the middle of one of those takes and i just think that flexibility with that kind of style is what allows flanagan to utilize it so often because i think the propensity for us, especially people like us that pay attention to these things to notice those long takes and say, oh, here we go again, is really high. And the ability to both have that showy moment that we're going to notice, but then also disguise another one in there just shows how flexible he is with subtle things in ways that don't necessarily need to be flashy. And I think if I there's one thing I take away from the direction of Midnight Mass is that it's extremely effective without being unnecessarily flashy by the way people like us my people <laughs> love yeah. it um, um wait i got a question for you guys yeah so because i really want to talk about the priest because yes his we haven't really done is it. incredible and he's the best character in the show but do you look at the church in this show as not just a place of terror and that's threatening but also a safe haven like a place where people can go feel safe but at the same time it's uh, actually like a place of danger because that's how I view the priest himself, where I feel like, you know, clearly there's something wrong with the priest, you know, right away as soon as he shows up and you're trying to figure out, is he the actual villain of the show? And it turns out he's not. And the thing about his character is I feel like he's so complicated and complex because he can't really, he can't really control what's happening to him. The actual priest himself, he develops dementia. Correct me if I'm wrong. And then that's when he becomes a victim of this quote unquote vampire. Excuse me. It's an angel, an an angel, angel? a vampire. We'll talk about that shortly. He de-ages him, but because he's feeding off of his blood, there's, there's no denying that he's eventually going to die, right? Like him drinking the blood is keeping him alive, but it's also killing him. Yes. It's dialectical. Right. Anyhow, I just find his character and the performance incredible. And it's like it's one of the most interesting characters of any TV show of 2021. Like, I I think I think, look, I think if you remove that character, the show is not good. I think if you replace the actor, maybe you get someone who's good, but it won't be as good. Like, I think he's the key to the success of the show being better than it is. Once upon a time, Hamish Linklater was like Andrew Garfield's agent calls someone and they're like, we we think Andrew might be a might be a good good fit for this, but we don't know if you can afford him. Like, we think maybe you'll just settle for Hamish Linklater. What are you? Talking but about? he was a sitcom guy. Um. Anyway, I think he's great here. Um. And he, I don't know whether he has a Catholic background or not, but I do. Um. And I didn't have that sort of priest, uh, in my life at any point. But I still think that uh, he dives into the the dogma with relish the whole show does um and flanagan just has so much fun taking scripture literally um and having people take scripture literally that like i can't the whole thing just has a 
has a kind of gleefulness to it, which I think Ham uh, Linklater taps into really nicely. I love how he delivers his sermons with fire and brimstone. It's incredible. His sermons, dude, like you can watch his sermons over and over. It's like the thing about this dude is you can't take your eyes off of him when he speaks. Like he's passionate and he truly believes what he's saying, which makes you almost a believer and he's inspiring, but yet he's scary as fuck. Like this guy creeps me out. Like I can't take my eyes off of him, but I want to run away. There's a couple of ticks of his that I think he overuses a bit, to be honest. Like there's a, like where he kind of st- 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 stutters a bit when he uh, when he's like really emphatic or like trying to make a point. Uh, but that's also like just a good preacher bit to have. So I don't know whether that was a deliberate choice or not. Given that he has a very extensive background in theater, which I think is kind of the basis for casting him in this role. You know, if you look at like his filmography, you know, you're not going to look at like, oh, he was on the newsroom. Let's cast him here. Um, but that theatrical background, I think, plays into some, a lot of the decisions that he makes with the character. But I think given the material and given the, like you said, the very literal nature that Flanagan wants to approach the religious material in this series, at least the the more Western thinking religious material in the series, those kinds of decisions and that kind of performance was kind of demanded. And I think it'd be really easy for another actor of the same caliber to come in and deliver a much cheesier performance because I think what ultimately sells the character for me is there is like, obviously this dude is a fucking monster, but you can respect his point of view in a certain way um, for him feeling a certain responsibility as a community leader, as um, somebody who has a secret love child in that community as well. And his, that assumed, role of guidance that a pastor feels they need to play in their community, especially in a community as close knit as that one. And some of the roads that that could disturbing roads that that could lead you down. If you were, let's say a little too passionate about some of those ideals. I think Hamish Linklater is just absolutely phenomenal in this series in a way that I thought would be, I thought that kind of performance, that kind of role would be more reserved for, kind of the regulars in the Flanagan T Netflix like a Henry TV ensemble, like Henry Thomas, who again gets, you know, we could talk about him getting the short shrift again, but maybe that's because he keeps getting cast in the role of Flanagan's dad. So hey, he, maybe he got that's to act against, he got to act against himself in Bly Manor. So as far as I'm concerned, that was a win for him. Yeah. I'm, I'm like, even if you do not like Bly Manor, which I do, his performance was so good. It's good. I, I still think his character and, and performance in Hill House was more prominently featured, deservedly yeah, that's so. Um, but, you know, I think I think that the Linklater performance is surprising because you see the other familiar faces in this ensemble and you would expect that role to be befitting of one of them. But him taking that prominence and kind of carrying the series through the finish line is it's impressive work. And it it makes it's very interesting to see where he where Linklater goes from here and what career choices he makes at this point. We're gonna have to cut the break soon, but there's a few things that I would like to just touch on. First of all, there's um, a great performance by the young girl who plays Lisa when she confronts Joe, the old drunken fisherman who I guess hit her. He hit her with a car, oh, right? Is, is that what happened? And then she no, he, he shot her. He shot her, right? Sorry, he shot her. He shot her with a gun. While drunk. Anyhow, her 
her performance, and again, that was a monologue when she um, another one when she shows up at his trailer. I thought that was an incredible sequence, and and I, it just goes to show how not only is Mike Flanagan extremely talented when it comes to his script writing and direction and visuals, but also how he um, how he deals with actors, like how he gets these great performances from almost his entire cast. I have to mention that scene again later for another reason. Uh, but um, so, yeah, we do have to take a, a, a break. I will just add that the one person who's missing note what well, one person who's notably missing from this ensemble is Victoria Pedretti, uh, who is in both of the hauntings. Uh, she is now instead on another Netflix series called you, um, which uh, I have to say she is fantastic on, and we may have reason to talk about at some point, uh, but not yet. Uh, so we are going to take a break. When we come back, we've got a few questions for ourselves and each other about Netflix's Midnight Mass. I'm not as strong as you. I never was. What do I want? I want you to take this boat and row to the mainland and leave this place and never look back. But I knew you wouldn't do that. I knew you wouldn't believe any of this unless you saw. I want you to run. But I believe you're going to row back there and do everything you can to try and save them. I'm just so sorry you have to see this. I love you, Aaron Green. I love you my whole life. One way or another. I love you, too. I did my best. You're back on Sorted Cinema. It is time to ask each other some questions so so we can scrape every last bit of uh, reasonable content out of this piece of media, and oh, then we can the go content. away. Gotta love the content. I know you're not a fan of the question, Simon, but it's the reason why people return. They want to know. I know. They want to know the answers. Look, television has taught us that people like formula, which is funny because by covering a series, we're totally breaking with formula, but whatever. Um, Number one, favorite scene. Ricky, I think you kind of already said yours. I said what I think is the best scene in the show. Oh, right. The best favorite caveat. Yeah, okay. Right. It's a scene on the couch. The scene on the couch is incredible. You guys can touch on it if you like. I already spoke on it. But my favorite scene is actually the scene in which Riley dies when he's on the boat and the sun comes out and he's burnt alive. Because he's my favorite character. I thought for sure he would last until the last episode. I didn't think he would be the last survivor. I thought he would for sure die and sacrifice himself to save Aaron. And no, this show does not, does not stop and hold back and killing off our favorite characters. And he died halfway through the season. Writing yourself into your own show and then killing yourself as the handsome tragic hero, five sevenths of the way in 
is a baller fucking move. No, for baller. real. Like, I did you guys think that he was going to die so soon? No, I mean, I thought because it, it it also it's a very like. Flanagan is a guy, he doesn't always make the smart choice storytelling wise, and there's lots of things to complain about. But I think one thing that he's really good at is anticipating audience expectation. And he won't always subvert every single thing because that's fucking annoying. But what he does but he does subvert things on occasion, and he does something very clever, which is that at the end of episode four, he is attacked by the angel, and it's kind of like it has the impact of him being killed, but it leaves the door very much open for a cop out where he, uh, you know, becomes a vampire and sticks around for the uh, for the remainder of uh, of the season of the series. And it seems to set that up. And then at the like, like you say, at the end of five, it cruelly uh, takes that away. Well, and what's interesting is that he's fighting addiction because he's an alcoholic. And so he gets or becomes a victim of the vampire slash angel slash demon. And so when he gets bit, he's actually able to fight off his addiction to feed on human blood. And so I thought that was interesting, but I still thought he would survive until, again, episode seven. But I also thought Aaron would survive because let's not forget that she had, was pregnant, or at least she thought she was pregnant. And I was like, well, what if she actually is pregnant? Like, would they actually kill the lady who's pregnant? But yeah, they do. They kill her. She dies. And they do. I mean, they kill everybody. I guess uh, with your favorite scene established, I, I, uh, I, I'm I, going to go for that scene also of, of him uh, dying, except uh, I'm going to get a little more specific about it, which is that I specifically love um, the cut to black and credits um, that is scored to Katie Siegel's blood-curdling shrieks um, which seems like a weird thing to specifically call out, but it really reminded me of the earlier, nastier Mike Flanagan movies like Absentia and Oculus, where bad things happened to people for no good reason, uh, which is sort of like a, uh, it's a sort of a malevolent chaos to that that is missing from a lot of his later stuff. And I just, I just loved how harsh and cruel that was and i was taken aback by it and i was sort of moved by it in a strange way um the sheer uh, tragedy of it all and it, i just i like i loved how heavy-handed he was willing to be with that so that's what i'm going with randy how about you man there's so many scenes in this series that i like and we, we've highlighted you know the few that i would probably consider among the best you know the scene it's tough for me to choose between scenes like you know this the extended scenes between um are the the pastor and riley right after he's bitten and the, he's trying to figure out what the fuck's going on and um you know we, we get that moment where the religious person goes through very convoluted lengths to explain and justify their decisions and behavior mm-hmm. and beliefs and i thought that was just a fascinating encapsulation of not only the two characters, but a lot of what Flanagan has to say about religion and its positives and negatives in general. I thought that just kind of, there was a lot happening in those scenes and it's a bit of a cheat because it happens across the whole episode, but. Okay. Is no one picking midnight mass? Well, that was the, it was the other half of my sentence was, I think the, the last, you know, we can say what we want about those last two episodes, but I think the church scenes in those episodes and throughout the series really are incredible. They reminded me of 
Netflix did a movie a couple of years ago called Apostle that was not very good. And it had a few scenes that had these. Kind oh, of yeah, like I saw that crazy trying to trying to achieve these like really heightened sermons that, you know, trying to depict how people may fall into the cultish thinking of like extreme religious zealotism. And I think those scenes in the show, not only in how they're performed, but how they're um, blocked and framed and scored is just, it is the horrific beauty of Catholicism in kind of all of its grandiosity. And I think Flanagan's ability to capture that without kind of betraying the balance that he's trying to find between the good and evil of religion um, is really, really effective. Now, just to be clear, we're talking about the Midnight Mass, Episode 7, or was it Episode 6, Easter Mass, in which he convinces everyone to drink poison. Well, I think the Good Friday and the Easter Sunday Masses are both extremely effective scenes. Right, but the Easter Mass scene is when they are convinced to drink the poison and he says it draws heavy inspiration from Jonestown massacre and heaven's gate, which I could not stop thinking about when watching the show. So I didn't need Michael Flanagan to tell me that because it was, it was clear as day that that if I'm I'm picking between the two, I'm going to go with the good Friday one, because I think the passion of that monologue and how the the monologue there slowly shifts away from being like this really strong religious conviction to the point where the camera's turning around at the audience and everybody there is kind of squinting a little going um what's going on here exactly i think that how that captured just kind of the overall tone of everything happening on the island was really phenomenal wait sir is that is that because there's so many great sermons is that the sermon in which uh lisa is able to walk again no, that's earlier in the series. The Good Friday one is where he starts to kind of hint towards the congregation of the hardships and sacrifices and bloodletting that may need to follow to purify the land. And just the passion with which he delivers a speech where he's really indoctrinating a group of people to their own deaths without them realizing it at first. But the passion that which that comes through really kind of informs the character and just how convicted they are in what they're doing is right for the people they care about. Damn, there's so many good scenes in the show. MVP, who be Randy? Oh man, I think. I mean, tough. I think picking anyone other than Linklater is is, is a sham. Is yeah, a sham. Wait a I minute, mean, you're not picking Flanagan? No, no, we're not allowed to pick Flanagan. No directors. Okay, no. the directors off the table. Off the table. Too it's gotta, it has to go to link later. I mean, I think that is part of part of that is by design. You know, I think a close second for me would be honestly Bev. I think Samantha Sloyan is phenomenal in what is a really mostly a thankless role. Um, but Linklater's ability to capture the complexity of tone that Flanagan is looking for across this series really, like I said earlier, it sets the stage for what the series is able to accomplish. And I think without that performance, a lot of this feels a lot cheesier and schlockier than it, than it should. I'm going to totally agree. And I'm not going to make the podcast too long. I'm just going to say, I agree. I already said why I like his performance, but I just want to give a quick shout out to Kate Siegel because yes. she's yeah. not given those incredible monologues and sermons and she it's i think it's easier to be a character like bev keen as an actor it could be wrong than to be a character like aaron green who's 
kind of like a basic normal generic like character like a love interest who just happens to be pregnant but her performance is stellar it's all interior too which is not what you'd normally get from a character like that she's great i think this is the best role she's had in a flanagan thing and she's had some decent ones this is the first like this is the first one where I think she's really gotten strutter stuff and she's really, really good. Big and she does get sort of a monologue Man. near the end. Sorry. <laughs> Big improvement over blind. Man. Huge improvement. Yeah. Um, I'm going to give a secondary shout out actually to the Newton brothers uh, who, to be honest, I've never really uh, noticed the music in a, in a Flanagan joint before because it's usually just like a nice natural fit, but I, you couldn't not notice the original recordings of hymns that make up a lot of the score, even if you don't know that they're original recordings Um, and they sound great and they're such a smart choice. All right. If you could change one thing, Oh, that's going to be so hard. One thing and one thing only about midnight mass, your God or the devil or whatever, you can step into the time cube and pluck out something from history or, you know, mess it around, whatever. What do you, what do you change about midnight mass? Randy, the one thing. Ooh, the one thing I change about Midnight Mass, I think Sheriff Hassan's character, I think I understand what Flanagan was going for there, and I think the performance is great, but I don't think the show ever it's it's never doing itself any favors when it's trying to dig into that character. And I think by the end we're kind of left that character is left unmoored, just kind of like, oh, here's a Muslim counterexample to all the Catholic shit that's going on on this Island. And I think the performance and character deserved better than that. And if there's one part that rings a little bit hollow in this series, it's that character and kind of his proximity to the conversations that this show is having about religion. You know, I'm going to agree. And I'm just going to quickly say that I think he used a character more so as he needed a sheriff or someone who was like a, an authority figure to not drink the wine at the church, to not take, have an actual reason to not fall into the belief system, drink the wine and therefore be poisoned by the demon's blood. Like I think that's the main reason. And I think by making a Muslim, it just added more complexity to his character. But I agree. It just didn't work. I don't think they had even room to really flesh out what that character was about. And again, I said this earlier, the monologue at that point in time was overkill. Well, I don't think complexity, like I would argue that a Muslim person who became a cop after nine 11 is not really what I would consider three-dimensional character construction. I mean, the Rahul Kohli's character is there just like, this is like an overall, this isn't the one thing I would change, but it is an overall weakness of the series, which is a sneaky way to introduce another thing that maybe I would change. But um, it is a weakness that I think Flanagan, to, to, to execute this vision about spirituality and religion and secularism and morality and all this stuff that he wants to touch on, necessarily, to his, in his view, he needs the island to be a diverse place. He needs it to be a place where there there are atheists and there are Catholics and there are other denominations and there's Muslims and there's people who are questioning things and there is people and and there are even people who kind of treat science as a religion. But no Jews. Um, sorry. No Jews. No Jews. Not that I noticed. No. Um, but um, you know, there's it's it's crucial to his vision. And unfortunately, I think the vision was just too ambitious because there's too many characters who are too thin. 
and are, are feel like they exist as a way to make a point rather than as rather than as a way to bring anything to the table as characters um it's just like the old complaint about uh, you know like they they oh they just they invented this wife character so that, so that they could kill her off uh and have the man have more dimension the concept we call fridging um a lot of these characters feel like a version of that where they they exist as a way to introduce a conceit rather than as people. Uh, sorry, that was a long rant to say something fairly simple. Anyway, Randy, you've already said what you'd change. You, you'd cha- you'd, you'd, uh, you'd, so you, what would you do with the sheriff? Would you get rid of him? I don't necessarily think I would get rid of the character, but I think there's something about that arc. You know, I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it, but there's something about there. There's obviously something missing to this arc, and I don't know if it's sharpening the focus on his relationship with his son and his son's relationship with their religion, or if it's just finding a different fulcrum for the character other than nine 11. Um, but I, you know, I think there's not a ton of weak spots when it comes to the characters in the series. And if there was anything that I was left wanting more of, you know, I think maybe traditional audiences would say something like, Oh, you know, I, I wish we could have gotten more, background on the pastor's relationship with um sarah's mother who's named mildred um you know something like that but for me it just felt his character feels like such it was such a promising introduction that ultimately they do absolutely nothing with so i guess i guess maybe you are right simon that maybe just excising the character would be the best option but at the same time, I think having those counterexamples to Catholicism is an interesting idea, and maybe it's just a matter of time. You know what show is actually doing that right now? That's Evil Baby. Uh, that's yeah. the only show having that conversation well. So what would you change, Ricky? Okay, well, since we've already touched on the sheriff, I'm not going to mention the sheriff because then I'm just going to be repeating everything Randy said. So I'm going to say the ending, and when I mean the ending, I mean... The shot of the two teenagers on the boat, the canoe, the boat, whatever boat it is, and oh, they watch the demon fly away. Now, here's the thing. Here's the reason why. Okay. So I understand why Mike Flanagan chose to have that scene for her to, I guess, be paralyzed again and not be able to feel her feet. But it just raised all these questions and theories from the community, which therefore took away the focus of what the show's actually about, I think. At the end, it was just kind of like a distraction for no reason. But I guess his whole it's point the ending of view, to old but good. Well, his his whole point of view is that it represents the idea that corruption and a system of beliefs won't just go away. And he just thinks that like these the way like for example someone like Bev would think and and feel and the things that she believes in they it, it, it would it would not just vanish from the planet Earth like it would continue. And so I get that. I just wasn't too hot on that one scene. It just felt like really, I don't know. It felt like it was shoehorned in. I I just did not like it. I think there's a case to be made for that. Um, I I rambled earlier, so I'll just say quickly, too many characters. Honestly, I would ax almost half the characters. Well, Um, you know, and the other thing too is just really quickly, it's like the two teenagers are on the boat, right? In the middle of the ocean. And my favorite scene just happens to be when Aaron and Riley are on the boat by themselves in the middle of the ocean. And I kind of felt like it also, in some strange way, took from like my favorite scene, but it's not a good scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just think too many of those supporting characters are hampered by 
really thin backstories. Um, some of the performances are also just not quite up to the usual Flanagan standard, to be are honest. Are you telling me like you the, wanted a deeper backstory for Bull, the town drug dealer? Oh, God, the town drug dealer. Um, yeah, and I'm sorry, like the kid playing Ali, I didn't think was that good either, to be honest. I mean, he didn't get a ton of material, but still, um, I don't know, just too many characters spread out too thin. And to be honest, after the Riley arc is concluded, you kind of are left with the sense, oh, that's where the show's heart was. Like, that's where Flanagan's investment really was. And everything after that kind of feels a bit half-assed, even to the extent where the the priest, his motivation completely changes or is revealed. And it's like, oh, he's just horny. All right. Like, I get it. Well, I also but think it, that's it, just a matter of like, you know, it's like when you you have a you line up all your dominoes the best feeling is when you first when you hit that first one and start to see them go i mean by the time you get to the end of that experience you know that that feeling is worn off and i think that's just a matter of where he placed that moment in the series which i think is Mm. kind of necessary for the way things play out for it to happen like we couldn't end the series on that moment and have it work by the way the scene i'm complaining about when she does say that she could no longer feel her her legs it's i'm assuming it's because she hasn't she didn't drink the blood and hasn't had any blood from mass for a while well, they yeah. explain yeah. That, that that she did everybody drank the blood in the town yeah. but after you know if you know they explain it through science at one point yeah like, in fact they yeah they explain it in obsessive detail if anything yeah that's the problem is that like there was all these fan theories online and it's like the show itself explains the show the show again. leaves no room i can't believe there's any every fan anyone, theory is bad Anyone who has theories about the show is stupid because there the show doesn't leave any Preach. theory. There's no room. There's no room for speculation. I mean, you could you can say that you wanted stuff to be different, and certainly there's things I would have done differently. Yeah, I mean, uh, like, look, the show doesn't me, outright Simon. say. Yeah, look, the show doesn't outright say that the creature is a vampire or an angel, but it doesn't really matter. We no, know it does say it's an angel, and I, you know, I don't think there's really any ambiguity about that. Like, there's a distinct definition of you know this literalism that that flanagan approaches the bible of angels being terror inducing figures and i think that show embraces that premise and runs with it in a way that i don't think the angels versus vampires debate is even a debate i think this show is very much about angels that just happen to bite and drink people's blood like we're not talking about people from transylvania with really slick hair and bow ties you know like i i feel like I feel like it does a disservice to what this show, to how this show tells its story by trying to distinguish between one or the other. I think this is a show about angels distinctly. Angels to some, demons to others. The point is, it doesn't really matter. Like, we understand what the creature is and, like, what the creature is doing to the town. Like, yeah. Demon or angel, um, whatever you want to call it, it's a creature. Yeah. It's a, and it's also like, I feel like we've underplayed this and I feel like I want to make it very clear. Um, This show would not exist without Stephen King who did not, is not credited with any portion of the making of this series, but his storytelling DNA is all over. There's some real heavy Salem's lot vibes to this. When I saw this, in fact, I was like, man, nobody's done Salem's lot in a long time. And Flanagan would be a good choice for that one. You're almost waiting for like, I was, I was anticipating like a surprise credits drop almost for like adapted from Stephen King's like, like or like or like suggested by Stephen King's Salem's Lot which would have been the most hilariously frustrating choice um yeah you you I was half expecting something like that 
Anyway, uh, I guess that concludes the questions of part of the uh, part of the podcast, except to say, um, barring the obvious, which is, you know, people who have enjoyed other Mike Flanagan properties, uh, who would you recommend this show to, if anyone? See, this is um, this is one of the questions where I understand the point in a question like, okay, so obviously anyone who likes Mike Flanagan's Netflix series, um, you know, it's completely different. But yeah. Still, like it's still Flanagan, and if you can sit through ten episodes of Hill House or ten episodes of Bly Manor, I think you could sit through yeah. seven episodes of I, this. I, to, to me, the question is really like, what else is in the wheelhouse of this show, so that you could say, "Oh, you like this," then perhaps you would also like Midnight Mass. But I would also like, again, point to, of course, Stephen King, but specifically like a movie like The Mist. You know, like I could not help but think of The Mist at times, and so I think if you're mm-hmm. into horror films like The Mist, which you know you have to remember that movie has a very bleak depressing ending and the tone of the movie and the characters like there's a lot of like similarities between that and this it just happens to be that this is a tv series seven episodes but yeah stephen king mike flanagan clearly uh i mean even if you don't want to use the word vampire anyone who likes vampire movies the um i the mist is a great call because it has the stephen king angle it has frank darabont uh who has some overlap with with flanagan and it has the um skepticism of organized religion uh and and or fear of fundamentalism all over it in fact it's even more over the top about it than midnight mass is um, if you haven't seen it, really, really fun movie. The other Stephen King media that it made this made me think of so hard. Have either of you seen the miniseries Storm of the Century? Long time ago, yes. Uh, with Calm Fior as a very uh, a presence, very much like, um, very much like um, Hamish Linklater yes. here, who comes to an isolated small town. Uh, where Tim Daly plays the local representation of goodness um, and tragedy befalls them. And it ends in a very, well, I I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it, but um, there's a lot, a lot of overlap with Midnight Mass. And it's only three episodes long, which to be honest, Midnight Mass would have thrived at that length. And this was written originally for television. It was his first and maybe still only uh, original miniseries. Wait, sorry, are we talking about Frank Darabont? No, Stephen King. Oh, Stephen King. Stephen King wrote it for television. Uh, I forget who directed it, but it wasn't Darabont. Anyway, it, it this reminded me a lot of Storm of the Century. So if you if you saw that, then I would say watch this. Or more likely, if you've seen Midnight Mass and you want something that's in the same wheelhouse, I would recommend you dig up Storm of the Century. And I would just add by circling back to a joke that I I made offhand earlier on that you know I've been. I've been kind of rec- using this show as a, a test case to recommend to a different kind of crosshatch of people and interests. And I really think that anybody who had a passing interest and in lost over the years would find something in this series, whether it's the characters um, and their kind of the tragedies that bring people their foibles, together, their foibles, their deaths. Uh, their body counts um, that and you know how this show uh, explores religion from a lot of interesting angles you know it takes a lot of familiar ideas about religion and explores them in interesting ways and I think that's kind of a bedrock of what you know early and late loss did you know mm. good or bad you can decide yeah. but I or think, the leftovers yeah and you know obviously. I think the leftovers a bit more of a niche recommendation but, yeah, yeah, right. but I think the populism of lost is that that kind of those different genres that midnight mass crosses over on its way to horror 
uh, kind of make it an easy show to recommend to a lot of people. You know, I kind of I love Midnight Mass. I love the show, but I feel like we might be overpraising it with the comparisons to Lost and and no. le- the leftovers. Like, like I maybe like this is an appetizer. Like if you no, miss Lost, I, if you miss the different journeys. Definitely. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like if you liked those things, there there is some overlap here. I'm not saying it's I'm not making a direct quality comparison. Uh, there are dead dogs in all three. That's true. Shout out, uh, by the way, uh, because I didn't we didn't really mention him, but um, I, I like Zach Guilford a lot in the show. And I thought uh, I'm glad that he's now part of the Flanagan verse, like he's going to be in the Midnight Society or whatever it's called. Um, and I I thought his casting was really smart because uh, a lot of the people who watch Midnight Mass are going to be people who watch too much television. Uh, I'm one of those people. And people who watch too much television will have an emotional attachment to Zach Guilford because of Friday Night Lights and Mike Flanagan exploits the fuck out of that. So when we were talking about what we would change and we, we mentioned the idea of having an editor, like a story editor or an actual editor, someone to sit next to you and tell you what to take out. Well, guess who edited the TV show? It was him. It was him. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. He, he, he made a, a classic like Xavier Dolan style foible. Of his own, which is just relinquish some control, buddy. Let let go. What what is interesting about the crew is the cinematographer. I have no idea who he is. I think he's only worked with Flanagan on big projects. Yeah. Uh, oh my god, shit! Since we didn't mention that, I have to mention uh, there are some specific sequences that look fantastic, uh, and I love, for instance, the super wide angle. Uh, f- framing of certain indoor scenes where like you have three or four characters sort of bisecting the whole frame um some really really good fun stuff uh especially in in interiors he's the the cinematographer this is the same cinematographer who did the uh to all the boys i love before movies which is just a random thing that i know well that and he worked on all of the flanagan's films well yeah he hasn't done anything like big outside of flanagan projects but yeah, I mean, there's some really gorgeous work in here. So I'm glad we got to. He will that. also be involved in the Edgar Allan Poe miniseries that I think is, I think Flanagan's doing that. Flanagan's doing that after he does the Christopher Priest. The, the guy is unstoppable, man. I'm excited to see him do Poe. Um, next week, we will not be talking about a series because it's my turn to pick. Did you notice, uh, Ricky, that they added Nosferatu in Venice to Shudder? Yes. As soon as we dropped our episode. Yeah, isn't that isn't that, yeah? They added both uh, uh, Herzog's Nosferatu and Nosferatu in Venice right afterwards. Uh, I'm 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 gonna watch Nosferatu in Venice for sure, and I might pick it if it's good, but uh, I probably won't to be honest. Uh, but I will probably pick something uh, spooky because it is spooky season, baby. Anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. We will be back next week. You can find the podcast uh, in a whole lot of places. Just Google Sorted Cinema, you'll find us. You could just go to sortedcinema.com. You'll find all the links and the archive for the podcast, although it only really begins at episode 500. For additional episodes, you would have to refer to YouTube. Excellent. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Randy, for joining us. Uh, you're on Twitter, right? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. I'm at uh, RJ Dank. You can find me there. And I'm, I'm writing around the internet, Tilt Magazine, Process Media. I'm around. Excellent. And you can find me on Twitter, Simon. Sorted Cinema. It's a good way to keep track of uh, the podcast. It'll. I figured that would come up on the Google search I told them to do. Anyway, thank you so much. Uh, I'll talk to you later. Pain, 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 yes. And then the fear was drained from his body, drained from his body. It is all of it. It 
fear, pain, it's just trained. Sing it out, sing 